Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Divorce has seemingly become common in some parts of the world. But how common is it for divorce to end in murder? What does that boiling point look like? For Betty Broderick, that moment came at 5.30 a.m. on November 5th, 1989, at 1041 Cypress Avenue, San Diego, California. In the bedroom, she stood before her ex-husband, 44-year-old Dan Broderick, as he slept beside his new wife, 28-year-old Linda Kolkina. Betty claimed she didn't know what possessed her to drive to his home early that morning, or what exactly she was going to do with the five-shot revolver that she brought along with her. But in an instant, the confrontation took a lethal turn. Betty Broderick fired all five shots from her gun, three of which fatally struck the sleeping couple. Betty Broderick never denied killing Dan and Linda that day, but she argued that years of battles and abuse drove her to that deadly breaking point. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. murderer or a victim? That was the question posed to jurors during Betty Broderick's trial. When Betty first met Dan, he was a medical student studying at Cornell. Married in 1969, their early relationship was troubled by financial issues. Betty became pregnant with their first child while the pair lived in Dan's dormitory. After completing his medical degree, Dan decided he instead wanted to pursue a career in law Betty remained by his side as he attended Harvard Law School and became the provider of the family. Dan was soon hired by a San Diego law firm where he worked as a medical malpractice attorney. They went on to have three more children, and Dan became a prominent figure within the La Jolla legal community. Dan's career took off, and they enjoyed a luxurious lifestyle that came with it. Although the Broderick family appeared to have it all, a bitter marriage simmered beneath the surface. Betty suspected that Dan was having an affair with his legal assistant, then 22-year-old Linda Kolkina, which she claimed led her to attempt suicide. In September of 1985, Dan filed for a divorce from Betty, but the proceedings dragged on for four years. During the hostile feud, Betty frequently called and harassed Dan, vandalized his property, and even drove her car into his front door. Throughout her trial for murder, Betty alleged that Dan gaslit and manipulated her and used his legal power to ultimately destroy her life. Betty was convicted of two counts of murder in the second degree and sentenced to 32 years to life in prison. Defense attorney Jack Early represented Betty Broderick in court. Today, he joins me to discuss the bitter divorce and the high-profile trial that ensued. Mr. Early, how did you first hear about Betty Broderick, and why did you take up her case? Well, I first heard about it um, because I had a practice in San Diego. I had one in San Diego and Orange County. I heard about the case. Obviously, it got a lot of publicity. Shortly into the case, they had another lawyer on the case uh, that was on the case. They, uh, her and her supporters became concerned about uh, how he was handling the case, his understanding of Betty. And so they reached uh, out to me. They know I did a lot of work with battered women through a organization in Philadelphia, training of lawyers 
had worked on a number of cases where women were defendants in homicide cases. And so that's the reason they reached out to me at the time. And sir, can you weigh in on, um, you know, with all due respect, of course, to the San Diego Bar Association and, and the legal community there, but there were allegations by Ms. Broderick that she had been sort of iced out of that legal community and that it was difficult for her to find competent representation during the divorce proceedings and that in part that led to a boiling over point. Did she express anything like that to you? Or did she, she express that it was hard for her to find anyone to represent her professionally? Yes. When I first met Betty, what had to be done, and I felt I had to do it, is someone had to listen to her. Mm-hmm. Um, and Betty had a long story. I mean, I probably spent four hours with her the first time I met her uh, and gave her the ability for me to listen to what she had to say because she had a lot of things to talk about. Uh, some of them that directly to do with the case, often most to do with the past and also with the system. Yeah. Um and even though there was a feeling at the very beginning that that needed to be modulated or at least condensed in a way that was understandable, it was important for her to have somebody that understood that and listened to what she talked about. So the that was a complicated question about her position in the legal community. As you can imagine, someone, if you're divorcing a doctor, someone that's not in the legal community, the divorce itself can can kind of dictate what kind of uh, litigation is going to go in the courtroom. Sometimes people just want to split up and they divide things very evenly. It's a very uh, easy divorce in the sense of uh, they want to split up, both of them want to go their other way. Then there's divorces that uh, are much harder. uh, And often those are dictated about what happened before even divorce came into the picture. Betty's was one of those that was always going to be harder. It was going to be one where there wasn't an agreement, uh, one where she was not going to be quietly take a position of uh, just going away in the world. She lived in the legal community. That's something that was part of her life. So there was always going to be some acrimony that would be almost in any divorce, no matter what the occupations were. The problems that she had is anyone taking that case in San Diego knew that they were going to have to be part of that position. That uh, they couldn't, they weren't going to have a client who was going to say, I'll take whatever is given to me or I'll just walk away and that'll be the end of it. So it was very difficult to find lawyers who were going to be willing to take on really the legal community. At that point, Dan was very big in the legal community, very big with the judges in the legal community. And taking an adverse position uh, was going to put those people on the other side of that equation, not just with one client who would have been the husband in this case, but with the legal community who was who Dan was. So that was always going to be a very difficult proposition. And when I got involved in the case, it was already clear as to the battle lines that were drawn and how the case was going to be handled. She had hired a lawyer in Sandy, in Los Angeles who was a very good litigator. Uh, He wasn't looking forward to having a battle, but he knew um, he knew that if she had at least power in her position, that she would come out better than she otherwise would. They would never pay him. I mean, obviously, Dan had control of the finances and in a normal divorce. What would happen is the wife would hire a lawyer and then the husband would pay those legal fees. Uh, he had asked for a retainer, the lawyer, that was not forthcoming, they battled that, and he bowed out of the case, knowing that this case was going to be a battle, including his fees, and there was no way he was going to moderate that. Betty made the mistake of going to a lawyer who just got off of this pharma, had an office that was really in the back of a carpet store, and it advertised for mediation, and Betty, who was not someone who wanted a divorce, she didn't want to give up her life. She tried to hire that lawyer. The very day that lawyer called, they sent him a $10,000 retainer, knowing that they now had Betty at their mercy because she didn't have a lawyer that had the ability to fight what needed to be fought, where he had the best lawyers in San Diego. So that was, I mean, just even at the beginning of the divorce, it was the beginning of a battle. It was no longer 
how do I make it so that I can separate from Betty and not have a battle? It was, it's going to be a scorched earth on both sides. And so that's how it started, Scorch Church on both sides. The difference is Dan had the backing of the legal community. Betty did not. And when we talk about the scorched earth nature of the battle as it began with the marriage dissolution proceedings, describe the nature of the marriage. Did the scorched earth begin during their marriage? Can you describe that nature and later the divorce as she expressed to you? Well, the difference in in this case, and that was the gas, you know, the the theme of the case at the very beginning was the gaslighting theme. Mm. What was done to Betty uh, as as they were going through this process? Uh, I happened to be a chef before I was a lawyer, so it was very Mm -hmm. easy for me. One of the things that we talked about and an expert we had was talk about pressure cookers. I was uh, a chef in the 60s, and so pressure cookers were used a lot, but they weren't allowed in the home. And the reason was is because what a pressure cooker, it requires a release valve. And if the release valve gets stuck, then the pressure cooker blows up, people are seriously hurt. Well, that's how I looked at Betty, is Betty was in a pressure cooker. She had a husband that battled her, that never let go, that pushed and pushed and pushed. But there was no relief. She didn't have a lawyer. She didn't have the ability to fight in a fair manner. And as in a pressure cooker, when there is no release, when it's built and built and built, eventually there's going to be an explosion. And that was kind of what Betty was was going through at the time. So at the very beginning of the relationship, uh, or the relationship that Dan had with Linda Coquina, uh, Betty was not apprised of that. Uh, Betty had no idea. And when she became suspicious, that was when Dan started telling her she was crazy. She needed to see a doctor. There was nothing going on where in truth was he had a full blown relationship meeting her in hotels. Um, there's a infamous meeting where Betty, um, at some point in time, trying to win Dan back, goes to his office for his birthday with balloons, cake stuff to set up comes there and finds that there's already those things half eaten in the office and Dan has gone with Linda Coquina. It's something he had denied all along. In fact, um, he talked about Betty just being off of her mind, believing that these things were going on, had her committed to mental institutions, uh, had her not believing what she was seeing in front of her very eyes. So that was before the actual divorce and before it became public that there was actually a relationship between Dan. He had always denied that even after the divorce and they separated and he moved in with Linda. He always denied to his children that there had been any relationship with Linda, that this was all the mother being crazy, forcing him to go in that direction. And the marriage, uh, as there can be in high powered marriage, I mean, he's a doctor and a lawyer has a booming practice, is very busy socially as well as uh, professionally. So there's always a lot of pressure there. There was marriage counseling they went to. They went to a Catholic retreat. Betty was always trying to, her look was that marriage was a partnership. And so for her, it was the maintaining of that partnership. Uh, Dan didn't look at it as a partnership. He looked at it as he was a sole practitioner and Betty was an asset. And for him, she was just something was, is it an asset he wanted or did he think he could do better or did he want something different? So they had a different view on life. It was in their writings at the Catholic retreat as to what they desired. Um, Obviously, Betty talked about having a family. She didn't care about new things. They could lay on the old couch, but it's being together, working together and making him successful where he talked about having wealth, having uh, more money, having power in the legal community. That was his desires for the future. So there was a disconnect even before the divorce proceedings happened of where they were going and what their roles were going to be. If you look at it, uh, I think the easiest thing to do and the easiest thing to understand, and that was one of the reasons that Betty's friends and Betty talked to me about being involved in the case is because it's very easy to look at um, at a case like this and think about Betty is jealous or it's a woman scorned. 
which is really just a bad position for women. Women in general in traditional marriages devote an awful lot to that marriage. They give up their own careers, uh, their own strength. They raise a family. They support the husband. And in, in return, they believe that they're building something. And so just to have the person uh, discard you at that point is really discarding your whole life. Men can understand if the, if the wife cheats on them, people understand that. And they say, well, no wonder he was angry. He's devoted all this to the marriage, and here's what happened. But if a woman, if a woman uh, is angry about something, they talk about jealousy, about how the woman is scorned, about how nasty they are, which is just the opposite of, of what you know, necessarily the truth was. Betty had built up a whole life for the two of them to have that was part of his practice. Uh, She helped them put the office together. Betty worked uh, running a daycare center, sold goods, worked full-time, raised children full-time, was involved in the schools, was there, uh, all of it uh, gearing towards Dan being very successful. And when Dan became successful, and Betty expected at that point to share in it. She was involved in the legal community. Uh, one of the mothers or wives of lawyers who would be involved in bringing school kids to courts, explaining the system. Uh, when Betty had that and Dan left, most of the time people think when someone leaves their wife, they grow a beard, they buy a boat, uh, they change, they, they are dissatisfied with their life. Dan loved the life that Betty did. She, he loved the photography, the trips they took, the relationship with friends, the social things that they did, the houses they lived in. Uh, and so he didn't move away from that. What he did is he just replaced Betty. And it was uncanny that when you look at a picture of Linda Coquina at her age and Betty at that age, they almost are mirror images of each other. Dan used to refer to her as my present wife. So you can imagine it's one thing that when your life has changed and now it's no longer exists, your husband's on a different track, you're on a different track. But imagine a life that you built, all of a sudden you just fade from that life and somebody else is part of it. So your life goes on, you're just no longer part of it. Betty, Dan had Linda use the same photographer, the same stationery, the same vacations. They dressed exactly the same they did for the pictures. He loved his life. He just replaced, she just started to fade away. Uh, and that was very difficult to see her life go on, just not being part of it. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. When you talk about how to qualify um, the value of a mother and a homemaker and a partner and support. That's part of the reasoning that goes into community property states um, there in California with a 10-year inflection point, obviously. So can you describe for listeners what was the divorce conclusion, the settlement conclusion like? What exactly did Betty receive? Did she receive half of the assets? Um, Was she awarded spousal support? Essentially, what did her slice of the pie look like after that? Um, Again, acknowledging all of, she, all of what she had built and contributed? Well, I'll tell you a little story. Is um, Betty was paid uh, for spousal and child support, even though it was mainly uh, because already there had been battle with the kids. He had control of the kids. But it was $16,000 a month. And when we were picking a jury, $16,000 a month sounds like a lot of money. Um, and the question I asked a, jur- a number of jurors was, you go and on the lottery with your neighbor. You each put a dollar in, you win $100 million in the lottery. Your neighbor comes to you and says, I'm going to give you $2 million and I'm going to keep the other $98 million. $2 million is a lot of money, isn't it? Would you be happy with that? It was amazing that some jurors actually said, yes, they would be happy with their neighbors because $2 million is a lot. Dan was earning $148,000 and that was just money that was money in his pocket. He, he also was earning a lot of money, which he was using for expenses, trips with lawyers, with judges, where he would pay for their flights, their train stuff and things. So he was earning a lot more money than that. So while 16000 is a lot in a partnership, when you compare it to what he was earning, it's a small amount of money. I'm- so a divorce is supposed to reflect both, which would mean... Not necessarily that Betty would get exactly half, but she would get a lot more given what his earning powers were. And he was young and 
really at the beginning of his earning powers, not at the end of his earning powers. So the problem that Betty had when she represented herself is in throughout the divorce proceedings, uh, his divorce lawyer, Dan's, became a judge and a presiding judge of the divorce court. Mm. Uh, when Betty was going through the divorce, to give you an example, the things that Betty would get out of the divorce was they had a grand piano with payments. She would get the grand piano. She got Warner Hot Springs, which was a timeshare, which just means you're spending money every month, has no real value. Dan got the 10 acres in Telluride. Dan got the office building in Denver. So uh, Dan would uh, put depreciation in and say the building was worth nothing. Uh, and that's really a tax way of doing something, of saying, but the real value was something different. So, and actually in the first trial, Betty's trial, uh, the statement made by the court and by everybody in the system was Betty was going to get to tell her story, all the evidence was going to come in. The divorce, how it was split, the money that went, how it went, all the property that went to Dan, that came in in the first trial, didn't come in in the second trials. Because they knew that when jurors heard what the split really was, how it was done, they knew that Betty was was going to be ta- was taken advantage of. The difference is Betty didn't have anyone in her corner. Some people blame Betty for that, for not being able to keep a lawyer. Some people look and say, you know, was she going to get a top-tier lawyer in San Diego? Not the way the divorce was going. There wasn't going to be any agreement in this divorce. Uh, and it came quickly clear to him that the battle between Dan and Betty was was really a death grip between the two. Neither one was gonna was really in a position to let the other one win anything. Mm. Dan, uh, my advice to Dan would have been give her sixty percent, walk away because your earning powers are so great it's going to make no difference to you later on. That was never going to happen at that point in time. So. Betty put herself in a position where Dan was able to completely take advantage of it. And that's what what happened. Even for visitation of the kids, even when doctors agreed visitation would be good, the court with independent doctors still would not let Betty have open communication with her children. This is after the cases, uh, during the trial, after Dan was dead. They still wouldn't do it. Mm. So... Betty looks at that as uh, Dan used the legal system as a bludgeon, and to a certain extent he did. And, you know, I'm, I'm no mathematician, but I, I think, so essentially she was getting 9, 9%, and again, going back to the community property concept, which is equitable division of assets. It's your spouse is 50, it's 50, 50. At the end of the day, it's 50, 50. And so yes, $16,000 a month, that's a lot of money, but it's 9% when she was entitled to legally 50, arguably. And and within that, as you discussed the dissolution elements, um, how was it that Dan was allowed to sort of fine Betty and withhold money from her court-mandated allowance payments um, for swearing, setting foot on the property one month? Um, it's my understanding that her total was, quote, minus $1,300. Is that something that you've ever seen before in another proceeding? Was that typical? Has there have been precedents for that. No, I mean, that that was another example of, of the, the court allowing Dan to run what was going on. It's unbelievable to me that, uh, that he would be the judge. It'd be one thing to ask the judge to set up a system to try to control the person. It's another for that person to decide uh, how that person had to act, what control, what is appropriate, and what's not appropriate now. And again, this is the pressure cooker example that we used, and effectively the jury was able to see it. What you could see is Dan's reactions, the things he would do to Betty, and if you looked at it, you would see the more and more and more and more push that he gave, eventually there was an explosion by Betty. So he would do things like Betty was the soccer, was the coach of the soccer teams of the children's soccer team, and Dan would withhold the kids going. So Betty would have uh, a setup time to pick the kids up, bring them to soccer. Dan wouldn't let him take her. And there wouldn't necessarily be a reason, just wouldn't let her take her. So she had to show up with all the other parents without her own kids. So those things would go on and on and on. 
and eventually Betty would have a reaction. And then he would use that reaction to say, see, that's how she is. That's the problems I have with Betty. So obviously if Betty had had uh, an attorney that knew what they were doing, they would have been able to stop that system. But most of the time the court is equitable. If the court sees something that's outrageous, they're going to step in and say, you can't do that. So you get an order of 16,000 and he doled it out like she was a five-year-old with fines in place, things that he would do that was totally inappropriate. And obviously Betty, during that whole procedure, and she's hearing from other people, comments that are being made about her, things that are going on. They came out mainly more in the second trial than in the first trial of um, facts of the case that just were not known before. It was one of the only times that, that actually TV coverage of the trial helped because we got a number of calls from witnesses that were hearing things in the trial that said that's not the truth, that's not what was happening. And um, that was evidence. Sometimes I'd get calls in the courtroom hmm. from somebody who had seen some testimony or heard something and said, that's not true. Can you give an example of that? Well, I can give a couple of examples. But for one, uh, the, at the very beginning of the trial, at the second trial, they and the second trial was the one that was Court Network TV did gavel to gavel. So more people were able to watch every moment of it. Uh, at the beginning of the trial, they had switched their strategy in from highlighting Dan as the victim because they knew we had all the stuff about the divorce, the way Dan treated or what he did with the kids, the way he mistreated them. So they knew they had that. So they switched to Linda Coquina and they were telling the story that she had been working in Atlanta. She'd been a stewardess for uh, Delta Airlines, had been uh, recruited to work for a company and they were transferring out to the office building in San Diego where Dan was uh, because of all of her skills. That was a story in that, uh, and that there was no relationship. I mean, they, they were arguing still there was no relationship before Dan separated from Betty. And that Linda was just somebody who was there for Dan uh, when Dan was at his most need. It wasn't something for her. Well, hearing that, I got a call all of a sudden from a number of Delta students that told me that that wasn't true. She was fired from Delta. That's why she had left Atlanta. And um, I got calls from other people saying that when Linda came to San Diego, she told them that she was going to target someone rich. And it was Dan. She didn't care if he was married or not. So once then we divulged that evidence, that changed. So that was an example of what was being played, but witnesses came forward. Another one was, which was at the first and second trial, Betty was receiving materials in the mail and they were weight loss materials, having her hair done. They were things just basically saying, um, you're an ugly person and you need to clean yourself up. So she was getting those. She made complaints about that. Their position always was, that Betty made them up herself and mailed them to herself because they always came from an out-of-town mailing address that were there. Well, during the trial, when that evidence came in, we got a call from a young man whose father owned a hotel in San Diego where Linda and Dan were having their tryst and hiding it from everybody else. And he he said that Linda had given them the envelopes to to mail to Betty and told him that they were going to drive Betty crazy, that Betty was never going to get the children. Well, that that came out because he saw it on TV. The worst part of that, though, is even though I turned that over the day after I heard from it, I was not allowed to admit that into evidence because they said I violated discovery rules by waiting 12 hours to give it to them mm. instead of right away. So there was evidence like that that came that came along. A hitman that Dan tried to hire to kill Betty uh, called uh, because Dan had talked to him about what it would cost to get rid of Betty, even though they were putting forth that Dan didn't want anything bad to happen to Betty. So uh, those things were developing somewhat during the trial. The second trial, we were not allowed to introduce our psychological evidence 
and the divorce evidence, uh, the split was curtailed. More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. Can you share for listeners, please, the reason behind the evidence and um, the statements that you have been making about the victims, about Dan and Linda, um, and the nature of the relationship and the divorce. All of that is to go into the theory of the case. The, The whole point is not that Betty ever denied pulling the trigger and killing two people. It was the reasoning behind it and that the reasoning goes toward the severity of the conviction and therefore the sentencing. Um, so can you share with listeners, you know, the first trial ended in a hung jury. Two jurors believed that the murders weren't premeditated, um, that she should instead be convicted of manslaughter. Can you sort of walk listeners through the X's and O's of what prosecution was charging specifically and what ended up happening in the end and, and why these pieces of information as you are presenting them, why that mattered to you uh, in your strategy of defending Betty Broderick? Well, I can tell you, first of all, just a short story that kind of tells you how we got to that position. Mm -hmm. The first lawyer that was on the case, he had given access to a young reporter from the L.A. Times to Betty um, and to material in the case uh, because she wanted to follow the case and do a story. When I got involved in the case, my first question is, given that you have somebody, Betty, and uh, I'll use the term, lightly middle-aged, middle-aged being in their 40s, with children, why you would give access to a 20-year-something, 22-year-old single person, Linda Coquina's age, to tell Betty's story. Where is it going to be that's there? Um, That just didn't seem to me to be the way that you would look at the case because I would look at a certain perspective and she was the one that wrote the article for the LA times, a woman scorned. Um, and so that's kind of defined Betty in that way. And that was basically what their case was. Their case was that Betty was jealous. She was scorned. Uh, she was vindictive. Um, she didn't like the fact that, uh, she had drove Dan away. They, went with Dan's strategy. In fact, if you read the divorce file, if you read Dan's filings mm-hmm. that he had and you look at the prosecution case, they're, they're almost the same, exactly the same that were there, just uh, without Betty's part of the story. So that was always their position, is that Betty was just someone who had become old, uh, was had problems, mental problems, and Dan had, trying to escape her, trying to help her. She refusing to have help, finally had to escape Dan. And that's Linda Coquina came innocently along long after that was over. So that was the story that they were always uh, that they were always wanted to tell and did tell. Uh, Betty's story was much. That's why it took me four hours to sit with her. It was a much more detailed story because the story started when they first met. You had to understand their relationship, how it developed, what Betty was doing, what her desires were, to understand where she ended up 20 years later, uh, what happened to the kids, where she was. One of the things that was interesting that Betty always told me is the story of the lawyers' wives in San Diego. They had a group of them, lawyers and their wives would get together afterwards, and uh, for social events, for things that they would do. And Betty would explain to me that when a wife's husband was going to leave them or the marriage was over, that group of women would kind of close their circle and exclude that person. You could see it. You could see it both emotionally and physically. Betty knew when uh, a husband cheated on her wife because all of a sudden that wife would have a new Jaguar, a new mink soul uh, that was there. Betty just said, we all knew that. That was, it was unspoken. Uh, And the person kept quiet about it because they wanted to remain in that circle of uh, that social circle, that way that it went. And everyone knows Dan loved that circle. That's why he had the cape, uh, went to the balls, had uh, all the expensive accoutrements of, of that. Well, then all of a sudden, Betty realized when that went south, all of a sudden, Betty saw she was the one where the circle started to tighten. She was on the outside. She was now being excluded from the life she had uh, that was there. So 
uh, you needed all that. And that always made the case more, more difficult because for us, everything was in the details. It needed to have jurors who were able to go through the whole thing. And it really wasn't sympathy we were looking for. It was empathy. Uh, one of the jurors who held out in the first trial was a man who had served in the military for 30 years. He had been away from war, and his feeling afterwards is, you know, the wife is at home doing all this work, keeping the family together. He felt, you know, Dan disrespected that, that, uh, you know, disrespected the work she did, and it made him very angry. Um so the, you know, that's, you know, the jurors who became to know that truth, that could see what happened, they uh, had a much different attitude than some of the other jurors. Uh, the second trial, there were jurors that were voting for manslaughter also, but there was a compromise. The second trial, the prosecution, much more with the jury, pled just to have a verdict, just to have this case over with. And so for them, a second degree was something that at least the case was done. Right. Um, so those jurors were, t you know, they were told by the other jurors, Betty will be in custody 10 years and get out. Uh, so they compromised and found the verdict that uh, they had been hanging out on for a long time. They didn't have some of the evidence that the jurors had in the first trial. Um, some of it the most um, psychologically strong. So those things were... It, it was a different case and also with a different jury and with a different push to just do anything to get a verdict. So to, to that end, what was the most pivotal piece of evidence used against Betty, would you say, in that second trial? I think it was the same as in the first trial, the evidence that made um, Dan had had one tape with the children, with one the youngest boy. Um, it was about a 40-minute tape, this is before Dan's death, where Dan was not letting Betty even see the boys. Uh, she wasn't allowed to take them to soccer practice, wasn't able to have any contact with them at all. And Betty was on the phone with them, and she was ranting about, uh, uh, about what was going on, about Dan and Linda. She was calling them names that we won't use here. But she was using very foul language, and Rhett was crying and asking his mother not to do it, that they wanted to live with their mother. But if she kept talking about her father that way, that was never going to happen. So that was a gut-wrenching take that was there. Betty, the truth was, and Betty, all she had to do was talk about she got so crazy that she wasn't even protective of the children at times. But in Betty's mind, everybody knew what was going on. And so that was something that, um, that was something that was hard for her to deal with. It was hard for her to look and say, you know, it was something I should have never done, but that's how crazy it was made. That's how bad things were. She just couldn't admit in her own mind that she would ever do anything to hurt the kids. And so that was probably the most damning piece of evidence uh, that was there. Obviously, there was other physical evidence. That was the most emotional evidence. I mean, there's Betty taking target practice, Betty carrying a gun, threatening to kill him, threatening to shoot both of them in the back of the head, stealing the key to go to the house. There was, you know, the physical evidence of the actual homicide uh, was strong, but the emotional evidence, uh, I think, was, you know, the one that was the most difficult for the jurors to deal with. Yeah. What about what was difficult for you as as her defense attorney, that those challenges, was it Betty's behavior or were, were some of the challenges, did they include Betty's own behavior? Did it include um, some of the, you know, alleged or argued power and influence that Dan Broderick possessed in the area? Um, was it media and press uh, any interaction Betty had with the media at that time? Describe for us what made, if anything, your job uh, more difficult in those trials. Well, the media was always a wild card because you never knew, uh, you know, especially during a second trial. Now there's billboards with the LA Times article on it. There's DJs doing, you know, Christmas songs about what did Betty bring to Christmas, the 38. There's jingles on it. The press was not necessarily in Betty's corner. Some of them, some of them were, but not a lot of them were. Uh, so that was hard. The good thing about the coverage, and one of the reasons we didn't ask for a change of venue in the case, 
is we knew that it struck a nerve with the public. So um, the, it, probably not surprising, there was, a, there was a number of wives of lawyers that I interviewed that said they couldn't testify because of their husband's position in the legal community. They gave me background information, but nothing else. A couple of them, uh, hope, you know, in, in a sense of humor, asked for my business card, figuring if they put it on their coffee table, maybe their husband wouldn't be so pushy towards, uh, towards that, realizing, you know, that they, that they have to treat their wives with dignity. So that, you know, that was something that was helpful in the sense that there was at least in the air that there was something real to this uh, case. It wasn't just a woman's scorn, that there was something much deeper. And most of the support came from that was just to be, and, and I still get lots of calls from people going through divorce that just want someone to know how hard it is and how lonely it is to be cut out from the family and something that a woman had worked for all her life, all of a sudden to be told, you're no longer part of that. Uh, and here is your severance pay. Uh, and the company will go on. So, you know, again, like I said before, people would understand that if a man is uh, was working in a factory and just let go because he's a little bit older, people would be outraged and understand what their reaction to. Um, they don't seem to understand that when it comes to a woman who's given something to, to there. So those things were all helpful. The other part that was always going to be difficult in the case is Betty had lived with this for a number of years before I got involved, before his death. She'd done an article for a La Jolla paper. Um, this was a public thing. Uh, people had taken their positions. And, you know, for her to understand what I she was seeing it all as an attack on her. Um, I saw the much bigger picture. And, you know, my belief is while sympathy is something that people always want, the most important thing in cases like this is empathy for someone to understand what you've gone through, because sympathy can go to the deceit, can go to anybody. But empathy is something that you need for somebody to be able to put themselves in your shoes, to be able to look and say, that must have been hard. They can understand that reaction. So while my goal is always, most, almost always in cases, is empathy. How can the jurors relate to this circumstance? How could they understand someone's emotion to it? It's harder for her because she was always looking for sympathy from people and uh, she was seeing sympathy going another way. So that was the difficult part is getting her to understand, you know, there's a story to tell. Yours is not necessarily unique. It's they're all unique in their own way. But it's a story that's just part of society uh, of how you deal with marriage, how you make commitments. And what does that really mean uh, when you make those commitments? And what does that you know, what does a person give up when that commitment is broken? And you talk about empathy and how important that is. Betty's still serving out her 32 years to life at the California Institute for Women. She was denied parole in November of 2011 and again in January 2017. She will not be eligible again for parole until January 2032, when she will be 84 years old. Why was she denied parole? Do you believe she remains a danger to society as the threshold is? Um, is it her lack of remorse as stated to the parole hearing board and the court? What makes this case different in that way? Well, first of all, I think she's expressed the, the remorse now. It's always, it's a little bit difficult in her situation, because it's just hard for someone to come in and say, I'm just an evil person, I realize I am, and I'm going to not be that person anymore. So while Betty has remorse in realizing that the course that she took didn't have to be that course, uh, there was other ways to do that, she'll always explain, first of all, she'll put that but in there, but you have to understand you know, that this didn't come out of whole cloth. It's, you know, not for me. There was a circumstance that's never going to repeat itself. You're right. Given her age and what's going on, that's not going to repeat itself. She's not a danger, but 
This was something that the legal, they named uh, the, in the Bar Association, the conference room is the Broderick Room. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there was, when I walked down the street in San Diego, uh, when I passed lawyers, there was a lot of glaring going on, people not happy. That was there. It kind of had the attitude of I was dragging Dan through the mud uh, that was there. And the things that I had were just the things that were told to me, uh, the things that, uh, you know, the people said. So they were just the facts of the case that were present. Dan, while he's a lawyer and big in the legal community, uh, was, you know, for me, another person that um, had his own part to play. I used to drive down. There's a freeway uh, that goes downtown San Diego that goes by the park where his house was. Beautiful place. Uh, and, And my thought always, almost every day going by there is, you know, if they could have just let go. If Dan could have just let go and just said, you know, here, you know, if he would have just offered her what she asked for, which was a pittance compared to what he had, she probably would have went away. She would have thought she was the winner, but she would have went away. But that was never going to happen. Letting Betty win anything just wasn't going to happen. So I looked at the two of them just locked in a death uh, lock with each other. Uh, not capable of taking a step away and saying what's really important. So it was, in that sense, it was sad both for him and for her. And the saddest thing was for the children. That was, you know, always through there was, you know, my feeling I like, you know, the, the, the children. I just think that no one really ever, you know, they, they were not foremost in everyone's mind. We'll be right back with more of this story. When was the last time you spoke to or heard from Betty? Do you have a relationship with the kids at all? Have you interacted with them or her? I don't with the kids. They, uh, you know, they've kind of grown up. And I think, you know, for them, I I would think deep down they just wish it would go away because they're always going to be, there's always going to be questions with the case. Yeah. There's always going to be say something about that is your case. And it's very difficult for them because they're not seeing the battle of, well, Betty should get out. It's a different battle for the kids. They have, there's family on both sides that are involved that have their own motive for being against Betty or for Betty. Uh, So they're still in the sense in the middle at that point in time. But I think they recognize that given the time, the age, that there's, there's very little danger to anybody else at this point in time. That wasn't, There was nothing about society in in general being in danger. So as the years gone by, no, I haven't still had contact with them. But I think, you know, they gave me the feeling their preferences could they would love to be able to move on with their life. And Betty, have you remained in contact with her during her incarceration? I do remain in contact with her less recently than uh, than I have. In the past, I mean, Betty would generally, um, you know, generally now and that she's not getting parole, I think feels it's her story. So, you know, how it is, you know, how it is told is in her mind, there's um, her, you know, there's her way of telling the story that's there. So I understand, you know, I understand that a lot about about Betty, that. Uh, she's come to look at it much differently. And when you're denied parole, it makes it harder, especially every year, knowing there's nothing you can say. It makes it harder on how you say that. Yeah. And final question, sir. Can you just share with listeners how this case impacted you, how it impacted you either as a as an attorney or in your personal life or the rest of your career? Um, and what final message would you like to leave with listeners today? Um, I don't know. Uh, I mean, the impact, obviously, from um, from a, a professional standpoint, I mean, people think, um, as they often hear, no publicity, any publicity is good publicity, uh, which is not necessarily true. I mean, for for me, I my cases come from like Betty's did referral from other people, organizations, 
um, when people, it can help sometimes when people know you've tried serious cases, big cases, as to you're capable of doing those things. So career-wise, um, I don't know. I've tried plenty of large cases since then, so it's not, um, that's not, uh, you know, that's there. But, it, you know, it's always a check. Uh, the kind of profession I have, the kind of profession that you have is very consuming. Um, not just the work that you do. You do the work um, on camera, but you do a ton of work behind the scenes, being ready for everything. Uh, lawyers do the same, especially if you're litigating cases. You're trying, you're doing a lot that's in the courtroom, that's in public, but you're doing a lot behind there. And so I realized the sacrifice that you know, that my family gives, um, even my children during that trial. I had to make sure my time, I was working 15, 20 hour days, but I always made sure from noon Saturday till six o'clock Sunday evening, my children had my full attention, nothing else but that. So, um, and that they were all making sacrifices, that if I wasn't working, it was family time I was spending, not feeling that I needed time for myself. Uh, because they gave up all the time uh, while I was working for family time, so it, it, it I think it re you know it, it refocuses you on what's important uh, when you do those cases. Like I said, driving and realizing uh, you know people not being let go to be so entrenched in where they are in their positions and their battles is that worth it? Is that energy worth it? And what's really important that's there? So those things are, those things I, I think are important to always reevaluate what's, you know, what's there. And it also made me going through that system, just realize that, that empathy, why it is so important for people. If you can understand how, why people do things, if you can be empathetic, if you can touch it, even though you may not have gone through that, if you can understand uh, how life can batter you and uh, and whip you around like a hurricane, I think it makes you more open to understanding other people. So that's always uh, what I do in my training with other lawyers, and it's uh, what's important to bring to you know to my cases in my world. Uh, Jack Early, attorney, I'm so grateful for your time today, for your perspective in. Um such a gripping case that really has held the national attention for decades. Thank you so much for your service to the legal profession, to the criminal justice profession um, or the criminal justice system. I mean, having competent, you know, consummate defense counsel, that is vital. And it's, it's just as fundamental as having competent, consummate prosecutors, of course. And um, Betty Broderick was fortunate to have your representation, and we are grateful for your time today, sir. Thank you. Thank you for giving me this time. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com.